Let's get rolling because I know eventually some of y'all want to head home. But before we get into what we're talking about today, I just want to recap briefly. I know it's been a little chaotic uh, with all the traveling and whatnot. It's like this every summer. Every, after I finish every summer, I'm like, ah, that's not going to happen next summer, and then it happens again. So here we are. But I want to go back and talk about what we've been kind of talking about, but briefly overview, because I want to get us to the same page of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So here we go. Well, we've been in the series, The New Man, understanding who we are in Christ is ultimately where we're trying to go. Janet was hitting on that this morning. And again, if you don't come early Sunday morning, you are missing out. Um, but she was hitting on this again. It's, it's recognizing who we are and the authority that we have as a believer. And the authority we have as a believer is that all authority was given to Christ, who is the head. We, the church, are his body. Thus, it belongs to us. But that authority is not over individuals, it is over the principalities and power and the spiritual forces and the darkness of this age. It's over the things of the world. Now remember, the Bible contrasts the things of God and the things of the world. Anytime it talks about how we are pilgrims here, that we are not of this world, we are simply in it. And so to not be of it means what? Well, we should look different, and we should act different, and we should talk different, and, and ultimately should maybe smell a little different, okay? Obviously, I'm not talking literally, but I am talking enigmatically in a sense that we should be separated from the world. The reason that the nation of Israel had all those commandments and all those weird random laws was to do just that, separate them from every other nation. For what purpose? So that those other nations would know who the true God was. As you read through the Old Testament, you see time and time again where they had heard about the Red Sea crossing, all these other nations. That's the God that did that. How did he do that? Because their God could not. And so understanding who we are, and we've been looking at it from a sense of what we're up against spiritually. Because what we tend to default to is that when there is a conflict or when something arises, we go to natural means to solve it, whether we realize that's what we're doing or not. When we are spiritually attacked, okay, and the Bible talks about that clearly, and we will get into some of that stuff, uh, the specifics of it. When we're spiritually attacked, the first thing we do is typically go to somebody and tell them about it or talk to them about it. It's okay to do that, but we shouldn't start there. We should start with maybe talking to God about it and in prayer. But ultimately, it was once you understand your authority of a believer, you don't have to pray to God to handle the situation because you have the authority to handle the situation. And that's where we're going. It's overcoming the enemy. Understanding who he was and who he, well, who he is and how he came to be. And we talked about all of that for several weeks of, of not only uh, what he looks like and what his name might be, because we have a lot of misinformation out there, but how he operates is where we're going. And so a couple of weeks ago, I, I began to uh, talk about this concept. There's three terms that I wanted to talk about, okay? The first one is the word justify. This is when we are born again. It's called justification. It's, as Janet always says, it's justify, never sin. The action of sowing something to be right or reasonable, made right. In other words, when Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, that is the gospel according to 1 Corinthians 15, that anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. At that moment, when we give our lives to Christ, we surrender ourselves to him. What Romans 10, 9 and 10, that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from eternal damnation, destruction. We are now justified. Now, spiritually speaking, it is justified had never sinned. It's going back to the garden, 
right? Before Adam and Eve sinned, they were in a perfect communion with God and perfect fellowship. Guess what? So are we. A little different, but so are we. Think about how the Israelites had to do it because they were not justified that God was in a tent or in a temple and that they had a certain formula that they had to go to God in. Guess who the temple is now? We are. So we are now just, so we're made right in in, in the image of God. We're recreated, made new. And then we jump to the next part called sanctification. This is when we begin to take that temple and make it act right. It's to set that thing or person apart for the use intended by its designer. It's called holiness. We become justified, but we know we've got to battle the flesh. We've got to battle this body because it wants to do things that God doesn't want it to do. And so in that moment, we begin to look and talk and act and sound more like the way that God would have us to be. When somebody gives their lives to the Lord, they begin to go through this transformation where their desires and their cares change. And you'll watch that progress over time. Now, we have to keep these two terms separated. They are not one and the same. The reason that's important is because what is the biggest denomination in the world? It is the Catholic Church, right? Well, they mix these terms up because they don't have a sanctification term. They put justification on the term and the meaning for sanctification. In other words, to get right with God, you need to become holy. And while that is correct, we must be holy. It's how we get there that the difference is. Because they believe through penance and good works and purgatory and baptisms for the dead and all these other things, prayers to Mary and all this other stuff will get you there. That is not what the Bible says. There's only one way to get there, and that's through the work of God. The third term that we talk about is the term glorify. The glorification, finality of the removal of sin from the life of the saints into the eternal state that God originally intended for us. What does it mean by originally intended for us? How it all started. In the beginning, in Genesis, we have paradise lost. In Revelation, we have paradise regained. Starting anew, the new heavens, the new earth. Everything in between those two books is how God is doing it. And so we have got to get to the point where we understand that. That's where we're going. That's where he gives us a new body, a new, uh, a new soul, if you will, is that we are now glorified just like God. And so we've got to get those terms down. So guess what? Here's the good news, is that if you are born again, if you have made Christ the Lord and Savior over your life, a lot of people have made him their Savior. They've never made him their Lord. But if you've done that, you cannot be any more right with God than you are at this very moment. Can't be. I don't care what you do. I don't care how. If, I don't care if you memor, memorize every word of the Bible. You will not be more right with God than you are at this moment. There's nothing you can do. That's good news. That means you got to quit trying. Because what do we do all the time? We try to please God. Yes, our actions should be coming of one who's taken the name's Lord or the name of the Lord on. But that doesn't make us more right or less right when we miss it. We are simply right with God because He made us so. You guys understand that? You guys follow me on that? I want to make sure you get that. Nothing you do. I don't care how much money you give. I don't care how much you know. I don't care how many people you've led to Christ. That does not make you more holy or righteous than anybody else who has given their heart to the Lord. That's just where we are. So we began to look at last week how the enemy works. Not last week, a couple of weeks ago, actually. Uh, How the enemy works. And, And getting an understanding of how he moves in. And there's two schools of thought of how we're going to go about this. We're going to talk about how he works outside of us, extenuating factors, outside factors, first of all. Then we're going to go inside, dealing with us individually. 
So we started here. And if you remember, there was one thing. is The number one way that the enemy works in this world is through people. It's people. How does God work through this world? People. We are his body. What makes you think the enemy would do that any other way? You see, he'll go in there and he'll use people that are not born again. And we're going to read this again in a minute. We read it a couple of weeks ago in John 8 where he calls the Pharisee, you are of your father the devil. Who is their father? The devil. Right? He uses people to come and bring us down. Now, we always blame the devil for everything. And, and, and we, I shouldn't say we. It's culturally acceptable that when things go bad, it must be the enemy. And then when things go good, it's got to be God. Right? So the way it goes. Have you ever noticed, this has always bothered me, that the only time we hear about the goodness of God is when somebody gets what they wanted? They get a new car. Oh, God is so good. Really? So was the car the key component to making God good? Because he's either good or he's not. Your car is irrelevant. Right? I have heard people give testimonies like that. And I get it. We should rejoice if we need something. But I had a person tell me one time that they were believing God for a car. And they have been waiting and believing God. And hey, we believe with them. Right? We stand at God. Can God provide you a car? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he can. You know, think he can afford it. Okay, so she was coming, this lady comes and gives me the testimony. She's like, man, God provided me a car. I mean, I've been waiting. It, it drives great. I'm like, well, that's awesome. And then come to find out the backstory. She put her parents in the nursing home and took their car. Now, maybe her parents needed to go in the nursing home. I don't know. But I'm sitting here thinking, like, please don't tell people this. Don't blame God for that. Like, that's, that's not what we're talking about. God is good or he's not. And he obviously is good. He is the standard of good. And we did talk about that a little bit last week. But the enemy works through people. He'll go through and people will come up and they'll come and attack you in one way or another. Things they say, things they do. Sometimes it's physically. Okay? We don't run into that a lot here. It does happen. But if you leave this country, you could give up your life for being a Christian. And so we see that. But you know who else he works through? Believers. Why does the Bible so often talk about us crucifying our flesh and renewing our mind? Because those are things that are not redeemed by the work of Christ. And when those two things are not happening, the enemy can work through us against a fellow believer. I just talked to a pastor friend of mine the other day. I actually preached at his church a little over a year ago. He's out in Manhattan, Kansas. Um, I hadn't talked to the guy in a while, so I just called him up to see how things are going. His worship leader attempted a coup to overthrow him as the pastor. That sounds crazy, right? That would never happen. Well, guess what? It happens. It happens more frequently than you would know. They actually had to remove this person. Worship leader, and she was a good one too. I mean, musically gifted-wise. I don't. Obviously, her attitude was in the wrong place, but she felt like she should have been the pastor, that God was telling her that, so she started raising a ruckus. You guys remember what I told you a few weeks ago? I was listening to that podcast of an interview of an ex-high wizard from the satanic church and there were three things that they used in order to bring down churches they specifically manipulated people to go and bring down churches number one was a sexual component they would have people in there and and they would there would be sexual sin going on the second one was a financial one the third one was gossip and what did she try to do the very thing and if we look at it it always stems back to one thing it's pride right? Our pride is, I will exalt myself up. I will lift this up. I will be that. It's all pride is what sin breaks down to. You see, the enemy uses people. 
Now, I want to show you that today in a different light because there's other things about the enemy using people that sometimes we, don't, we, we tend to overlook, and we don't think about it this way. So I want to start today in John chapter 8. We did read this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to go there again because I want to build off of this. In John chapter 8, we're starting in verse 12. Jesus here is dealing with the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were the leaders of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like the supreme court of their day for the Jews. Now, they only had limited authority because they were under Roman rule. That is why they could not execute Jesus when they wanted to. They had to get permission for that. But anything else, they had uh, uh, power over. And so these are the guys that are giving Jesus a hard time. They're the religious leaders, but they're also the political leaders of this day. And they do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And they are always going around questioning him. In verse 12 of chapter 8 in the book of John, this says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, them being the Pharisees. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, why did he say the light of the world? Why did he say, I am the light of the world here? Well, what you don't know is in the context, he's standing in the temple. And outside of the temple, the different festivals were these very large things, and they were lit. And they were part of the festival of lights. They were part of some of the other stuff. And they would say, this is the light of the world, because the temple would be lit up like a, a Christmas tree in a, in, a, in a dark house, you know, in the middle of the night. And it was considered the light of the world because then everybody knew where to flock to what? The presence of God. Okay? And Jesus looks up at that and maybe pointed at it and said, hey, you see that? That's not that. That's me. I am the light of the world. That's a little sidebar, but, you know, it's free. The Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. But if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. But I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father sent me, who sent me bears witness of me. Now, why is this such a big deal? Again, I talked about this, but I'll reiterate it. Underneath the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant, that you had to have two or three witnesses to prove anything. So out of the mouth of two or three, you've heard that used in church, is talking about that anytime they brought something before a high court of some sort, you had to have two witnesses to make it truthful. Jesus, and they're saying, you just, you're just one. That's it. You're the only one. He says, no, 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 no. You don't understand where I come from. I'm with the Father, and He bears witness of me. We are two. And that is what's going on here. It's no different. Remember, in the festival, or the, the feast of uh, the new moon, or in the new was uh, feast of trumpets. There we go, feast of the new moon. That's not what I meant. The feast of trumpets. When they're looking for the new moon, the new moon is no moon, right? It's it's, it's like you can't see it. And so before they would actually start it, they knew around the day and the hour, but they never really knew when it was going to start because they had to have two witnesses that saw the new moon, and then they would go to the, the Sanhedrin, they would go to these guys, and then they would, or the high priest, and they would blow the trumpets, but it had to be two. If one saw it, it doesn't count. Had to be two witnesses. So if it's a cloudy day, that's why they never knew when it was going to start exactly. Again, back to this two witnesses thing. When Jesus said in Matthew 18 um, that were two or more 
more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. He is dealing with church discipline there. And he's saying when, when we're dealing with somebody who has sinned against the body, we need two witnesses, and it's just as if I am there because you have my authority to deal with it. So this two-witness idea goes all the way back. That's what this is talking about, and he's making it very clear that you should believe my words because I am not bearing witness just of myself. And they answered, says, where is your father? And he said, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, then you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Now that's a big statement because these guys thought that they were right with God. Why did they think that? Because they were doing all the religious practice of the day. They were teachers of the law which is the Old Testament, they were teaching that. Surely if you are teaching things out of what we call the Bible, you must be right with God. Wrong. Do you know that I have met atheist seminary professors? I have no idea what would make you get up in the morning and decide to go to work, but they do. Do you know how many students through the years that I have sent to some sort of a Christian university that they went in loving God and came out despising Him? Numerous. These are Christian universities. Can you imagine the secular ones? Let's go on. So the Jews said, well, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's two words there that are very important. First is the belief. What is belief? Faith, Right? You break those two, it's the same word. You put your faith in whom? He. What is he? That he is the Messiah, the one, the anointed one, the one that was uh, prophesied that would be coming. So if you do not put your faith in him, which is what that just said, then you will die in your sins. What does that mean? That if you go to church on Sunday, but you never truly put your faith in him, you will die in your sins. If you do all the, if you build orphanages in, in New Guinea, but you don't put faith in him, you will die in your sins. You see, that is the key component, is faith in him. Then they said to him, well, who are you? And Jesus said, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say to you and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Now, who's the world? It's the place that he is not of, right? He's just making a, di a distinguishing uh, remarks here. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Lift up on the cross. Okay? That's what he's speaking of. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is, that, is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And he speaks these words, and many, as he spoke those words, excuse me, many believed him. In him. So what does that mean? They put their faith in him as the Messiah. In other words, he is who he says he is. So many of them in that moment were now born again. What didn't they do? Well, they didn't have everybody bow their head and close their eyes and raise their hands. So they must not be born again, right? No, that is a formula that was actually started by Billy Sunday. If you did not know that, now you do. He was one of the first ones to do it. It's okay to do, but it is not the end-all, be-all, and we act like it is. So moving right along. So, verse 31, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, okay, so now who is he talking to? The believers. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, who's the truth? 
Jesus is, right? They answered him, we are of Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now, this is a fair question, and we talk about it. Jan is talking about teaching through Daniel right now, and they are in bondage. And so they understand what it means to be free. But these guys are like, hey, we, we're, we're good. Like, Rome treats us pretty all right. We're not in bondage. I mean, there's some things we can't do, but life is pretty grand. And so they have no idea what he's talking about. So he's going to go on to explain, verse 34. Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Show of hands, anybody ever commit a sin? The rest of you are lying. You're in the group. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides. So he's making a distinction. Slave, son. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Free from what? Sin and the bondage thereof. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that I have seen with my fa- what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Now, who is their father? Well, he hasn't told us yet, but he's about to. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication, we have one father, that is God. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Now wait a minute, they've been listening the whole time, right? Why did you say you're not able to listen? There's a difference between hearing and listening. Yeah, you're hearing the words that are coming out of his mouth, but they're not sinking in. You're not listening. You're not taking this in as truth. Husbands can relate to this, right? We hear what our wives say, but we don't always pick up on the uh, expedience in which they need things done, okay? There was a meme that went around or something. I don't know if it was a coffee cup or what it was, but it's like, listen, when I say I'll get to it, I'll get to it. You don't have to remind me every day, even if it's six months later, okay? We'll get to it. So they can't listen. Remember, why did Jesus speak in parables? Because only those who were of the faith actually understood them. Those who were outside, which was the Pharisees, could not understand the parables. They were like, well, wait a minute. What are you talking about? Okay? So, why do you not understand my speech? Verse 43, because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, some says liar, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Let's pause there for a minute. Now think about this. We always talk about we are fruit inspectors. We go up to a tree, not sure what it is. How do we tell? We look at the fruit, okay? If it's an apple tree, it's no longer confusing. If there's apples on it. If there's not, then there's another thing. So he is saying that I am judging you by your fruit. In other words, the fruit that you produce are lies and murderous in nature because you are of your father, the devil. In other words, the essence of who you are is of the enemy. The essence of who he is is of God. Thus, his believers are the same. Verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. He is laying it out there and he's laying it out there on hard and heavy. Do you know that this is not how churches preach anymore today? 
What do we do? We'll do anything to get somebody to show up to a service. We will do anything and to make them as comfortable as possible to the point that we won't talk about sin. And we won't talk about the blood that was shed. We won't talk about any of that stuff. We want everybody to feel welcome and warm and fuzzy and comfortable and all of that. And guess what? We should feel welcome. And there are times maybe some warm fuzzies. But we should not be so comfortable in our sin that we could sit through a service and not leave convicted. And what happens is just like them. You do not hear my words. You're not listening to my words. Yeah, the words are being spoken, but they're not listening. They're not mixing it with faith. It's not sinking in. You see, I mean, all across the country, this is going on. You guys have heard of the seeker-sensitive movement? That was a big thing. started in the late 90s, I think. Um, some, of the, some of the pastors that were part of that have repented of it, realizing their hearts were in the right place. They were trying to get more people to Christ. So they thought, maybe if we simplify it and we don't make them feel like crap all the time when they're there, they'll give their hearts to the Lord. And what they realized is they had a, well, put it bluntly, they had a bunch of goats where there should have been sheep. And, I mean, a guy like Bill Hybels, as an example, repented of that. His heart was in the right place. He was trying to do things, but when you begin to judge the fruit, which is how we test things, He's like, this is not working. At best, he had a bunch of baby Christians that had never been able to stand on their own two feet. He said, at best, and those are his words. And so we have this going on the same today as it was back then. As a matter of fact, there are things going on today that are exactly the same as they were 2,000 years ago because there is nothing new under the sun. Now, who was the enemy using in this case? He was using people, the Pharisees specifically. And they were constantly going against Jesus and trying to persuade all the uh, believers to not be believers. In fact, they tried to pay the guards when the tomb was empty. Said, listen, just tell them that they came and stole the body. You fell asleep. You do that. At what point when there is no longer a body in the grave, you start to wonder, okay, he said that was going to happen. Like, maybe I need to look at this. Because their hearts were hardened. They were of their father, the devil happens today, guys. In fact, I'm going to talk about that specifically. Because one of the ways, now, who, well, let's, let's talk about this real quick. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law, right? The law being the scriptures, okay? Look at what Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was of the Pharisees, come in John chapter 3, comes to Jesus by night and says, what must I do to be uh, saved? And Jesus said, you must be born again. And he says, well, how can I get back into my mother's womb when I am old? And he says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? And in other words, are you kidding me? Like, you don't get it? How long have you been doing this? You see, these were the teachers who were leading people astray, right? And what do we see? We jump ahead two chapters, John 10, 10. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. How do they find life? In him. Is there life in any other way? No. And how do we come to him? One way. It's the narrow gate. There's only one way in. Anybody who tries to go any other way, he says, is a thief and a robber. And what is the thief? They, he, he comes for three things. He's going to steal, he's going to kill, and he is going to destroy. What? What is he going to steal? What is he going to kill? And what is he going to destroy? Well, if that thief, and he is talking to the Pharisees in this moment, and essentially is calling them the thief, Think back to Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8 of the parable of the sowers. The seed was sown, but the birds of the air came and took 
the seed from their heart, lest they believe and be saved. And who were the birds? It says the devil. Luke chapter 8 spells that out very specifically. So he came and stole the word of God from them unless they should find life. So what's happening here? These Pharisees are going to all these people who are now putting their faith in him or beginning to, and they're trying to steal that seed from them. No, 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 that's not true. No, no, he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah would be sinless, and he healed on the Sabbath. And his, uh, his, his disciples, they didn't wash their hands before they ate. That's against the law. And you go back way before that, and Moses kept telling the very people that were there when the law was written, and says, listen, your flesh is circumcised, but your heart is far from God. You need to circumcise your heart. In other words, you're doing the components of it. You're acting a good game, but you've never given your heart to God. And that's the difference. You see, that's the thief. They've come to steal, to kill, and destroy. In other words, I don't want you to find life. I'm going to keep you from that. We, and you guys see how all of this can make sense and lines up very well with what we see in other parts of Scripture. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one comes to the Father but by Him. That's it. There is no other way. There's not like, well, if I do this, then maybe. Or if I believe this, then perhaps. Um, none of that. There's one way and one way only is that Jesus did the work. We receive it freely. So how does the enemy work through people? One of the ways is through false teachers. Okay? Now, we know in Scripture, in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, but other parts, Thessalonians talks about it, that there'll be a false signs and wonders. Okay? If there's false signs and wonders, what does that mean? Well, there's real ones, too. Why would there be false ones? Right? Have you ever noticed there's no such thing as a counterfeit $3 bill? You go try to use that at Casey's, what are they going to do? They're going to think you're nuts. And they're going to call the cops. And you will take up an offering for bail money. I'm just kidding. We, because if, if there's nothing legitimate, why would you ever falsify it? Okay? There has to be. So there's false signs and wonders. And all through the New Testament, it says, watch out because there are wolves in sheep's clothing that go among the flock teaching destruction and leading them to destruction. Okay? Does that happen today? Yeah. It's all over. We tend to take for granted. What's happening? I want to show you one example of this that's going on right now, okay? Because this is what I'm talking about. How does the enemy work? You see, we are so moved. We're so gullible in this country. We are moved with every wind of doctrine. We're tossed to and fro is what, it's, what, what the Bible says. Is that we, we get like, we hear some TV preacher say something like, oh, man, that's great. I, yeah, I believe that. And then you'll hear another TV preacher say something opposite of that. And you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I believe that one too. Well, that doesn't work. Because one is right or none is right. Can't have both right if they're opposing truth. Or we'll read a book and we're like, yep, this is it. Because it's written by an authoritative source of some sort, they must be right. You remember me telling you about the atheist seminary professors, okay? Why? Why? Some of you guys have heard pastors in this town that have made statements, not recently, but made statements about telling a story in the Bible and at the end of it say, now I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, right. Are you kidding me? What are you wasting your time for? What are you doing? Because it's either true or it's not. There is no in-between. And so one of these things that has reared its ugly head in, in just recent years, and it's been going on for a little while, but really come to the forefront, or at least I've noticed it, is something called Marcionism. 
So I want to explain what this is. I'm going to show you how this has been going on for thousands of years and show you how the enemy has worked through this, even with some very popular teachers. And I'm going to show you a small snippet of those, but honestly, guys, I could go on for weeks showing how this has infiltrated into the modern thinking of the believers, okay? So who is Marcion or Markian? I'm not sure how you say it. Guy on the left there, the old guy with the, the beard and the halo. Don't ask me why he always has a halo. Do you notice that halos aren't in the Bible? Anyway, he was born around 85 AD in modern-day Turkey. That's where he was from. He died in Rome around 160 AD. So he lived a pretty long life. He was the first person to publish um, a fixed collection of what we call the New Testament. So far, so good, right? He put, because prior to that, you had individual letters, and he began to compile those letters and kind of made them in what we would call the New Testament. But here's the problem. He rejected the Old Testament as having no relevance or authority for Christians today, or back then, I should say. None. Absolutely none. It, it didn't make any difference. Thus... His New Testament was considered to be the whole of the Bible. So, the Old Testament is irrelevant for believers today. Is that true or not? Of course it's not. Do the commands in the Bible have relevance to us as far as the Mosaic Covenant? No, not necessarily. But there are principles in it that are reiterated all through the New Testament. So, he, his father, he grew up in an apostolic church, which means it was founded by one of the apostles. His father was an elder there. So, he grew up hearing truth his entire life. Paul was his favorite apostle. He was the one that appealed to him most. And he believed that Paul was the one who more accurately preserved the teachings of Jesus. Which means what? The other one's got it wrong. Okay? Now, this has gone by another name recently, maybe Pauline Christianity. You've heard of something like that, perhaps? Um, because they don't call it Mar Marcionism anymore. But Pauline Christianity, where Paul got it right, and the other ones were wrong. So, you guys, you guys know I graduated from Rama. I graduated with about 1,500 other students. I've stayed in touch with a small pocket of them. And um, I had a friend that I graduated with who fell into this. And he rejected all the writings in the New Testament except the letters of Paul. And his words, like, if Jesus would have simply had brought on apostles who were literate and able to write, then maybe we could trust them. But since he didn't, Paul is the only one we can trust. Now, he graduated from the same school that I did. How did he get so far off? Tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So, he believed in grace through faith. But he believed that the modern church was mixing law into that. Think of Acts 15 when they're trying to figure out exactly, well, what do we do with these new believers? Do, we need, do they need to be circumcised and whatnot? He believed that the gospel, which is what, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died according to the Scripture, was buried and rose again three days later according to the Scripture, was an entirely new teaching brought to earth by Christ, thus making the law and the prophets null and void. In fact, the, he considered the law and prophets had no preparation for it whatsoever, for what Christ came and did. In other words, what he would say is we simply look to Jesus, not the old writings that actually pertain to him. We look to Jesus as the example of who we are and who he says we are. Not those old writings. We, we throw those out. 
Now, he was a wealthy man because he was a ship owner, and that's how they got stuff around, and ship owners were pretty wealthy back then. And he was getting pretty frustrated where he was in the area of Turkey. And so he decided he needed to find a more enlightened crowd. The reason he was getting frustrated is because there weren't a lot of people buying into his teaching, but there were some. And so he took off for Rome around 138 A.D. So we are still, now think about that, that we believe the book of Revelation was written around 95. So we're within 40, 50 years of that, guys. This is how early we are talking. And so if you want to get clout with a church when you show up, what's a good way to do that? You write a check, right? That's what you do. You want to have some power? He made them, oh, he didn't write a check because I don't think those existed back then, but he made a large donation to the Catholic Church. Now, don't think Catholic like we think Catholic today. Catholic simply meant universal. It was the universal church. Again, that even in and of itself to say that has modern consequences to it, but these guys were legit teachers of scriptures. I mean, these guys were legitimately born-again people. So he makes this large donation. He thought his views were so self-evident that anyone that didn't were not poisoned by this other teaching that you know that you mix law and gospel or anything like that, that uh, they should be able to get it. And that is really why he went to Rome, as he was trying to build this up. So what does he do? He shows up, he writes that big check, he gets, he gets in there and he starts teaching his stuff, right? Here's something you don't hear a lot about today. The Roman church was so disturbed by his doctrine that they actually gave him his money back. Now, there's something you don't hear today. Right? Because we're pretty quick to take it, but we're not often quick to return it. And why is that? Because we're not trusting God. Okay? I had a person reach out to me just last week on Facebook wanting to send their tithe to this church. They have never been to this church. And my advice to them is said, you tithe to whatever church you go to. And he says, well, I don't go to church. And I'm like, well, then we've got other issues to contend with. I don't know why you're concerned with tithing. But he, um, his statement, he said, I live next door to a church. He said, you're the only person in three years that has invited me to church. And so he wants to send his tithe here. And I told him no. You know why I told him no? Because we don't need his money. We need his heart, right? I don't need his checkbook. I don't care if he sends one penny here. And in no way did I want to give that idea that, you know, hey, because he told me, and I was trying to explain him what, and we're still in communication, this, this conversation isn't over, but I was trying to explain him what tithing was a little bit. He says, I believe that by tithing, God sees the intention of one's heart and, and thus making you good and all these other things. And I'm like, that's not how it's working. And in no way will I accept your money to give you that false impression. We won't do it. Because we've got to draw a line. So the fact that the early Roman church handed the money back, praise the Lord. Don't know that that would happen today with most churches. So they handed back his money. They were so disturbed by his doctrine, they completely rejected it and rejected him and kicked him out. But he was gaining a following. It was getting bigger. He believed that Paul was the only faithful apostle and all the original apostles were corrupted by their Jewish teachings and upbringings, thus because they were mixing legalism with it. And there may be some truth to that, not necessarily the apostles, but, but of course they're mixing legalism with it. You know why I think that? Because we still do it, right? We somehow think that if we just do certain things that God will be pleased with us. So, he rejects the God of the Old Testament being the same as the Father that Jesus referenced. In other words, there's the Creator God, and He kind of split things, but that, and that, that was the angry God. But Jesus, the one that Jesus was calling Father, that's the God of love and mercy. That's the God that we worship. 
I hope you're picking up on some red flags here, okay? So, the Father was good and merciful, but no one had ever heard of Him until Jesus showed up and told them about it. So he was unexistent in the eyes of the world. And since he couldn't convince the Catholic Church of his teaching, he withdrew from them, well, kicked out, and started his own. He started making a movement. And it gained a lot of followers. In fact, Irenaeus and Tertullian both write against him. It was one of those two that wrote an entire thing called Against Heresies, and Marcion was a big part of that. There were other ones that were going on, but they were, I mean, they labeled him a heretic. As well they should have. So he compiles a New Testament. Okay? It was called two parts. It was called Gospels and Apostle. Okay? We have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You could throw Acts in there if you wanted to. Um, the Gospel is just the story. And then you have all the writings of the Apostles, primarily Paul. Now, the Gospel really only had parts of Luke in it, Luke and Acts. He, he took little bits and pieces and put that in there, um, didn't put it all. It was purged of anything that he didn't agree with, okay? So, makes sense to me. Does that sound like modern times today? I don't like that part. We'll just take it out. I was with the boys one day. I may have told you guys this. I was with the boys uh, back there, we were doing Bible study, and we were talking about Matthew 7, how it says, judge not lest you be judged and stuff, and I went to close my Bible, and I accidentally ripped it out, and I just thought that was ironic, because that's mostly what we do today. We just rip something out of the Bible and say, yeah, I don't like that part, I'll just take it out. Um, it bugs me that it's not in there, but I don't want a new Bible, because I really like this one. So, he only had parts of Luke and uh, Acts in it, he took out anything he didn't like, anything where he, that was in there that he didn't agree with was completely thrown in there by the Jewish scribes to force the law on the church. That's what his thinking was. They put this in here to mess with everybody. So this is what his, his Bible looked like. You've got these here, so he had 12 of the 27 books, um, you, we, Luke and Acts stuff, but he rejected everything else, pretty much. Now, he would have bits and pieces out of this, but not in entirety. As an example, he omitted the birth of John the Baptist. Why did he do that? Well, there's an implied connection to Jesus. Why? Because they're cousins, right? Okay. Jesus' birth was omitted from it. Why is that? Well, they figured he descended from on high like he ascends in the book of Acts. So he couldn't have been born naturally. had to be just supernatural, which I pretty sure a virgin giving birth is pretty supernatural, but whatever. He took out all the genealogies of Jesus. Anything to do with him being man at all was taken away. Um, the temptations of Jesus he took out. You know why? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. If Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, there must be some legitimacy to it, and we can't have that, Okay? He did the same thing with the writings of Paul. He'd go through, and I don't want to go through the entire list, but as an example, and, and Janet, you'll pick up on this right away, he eliminated Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, and Janet knows why, because in chapter 9, it talks about the history of Israel, chapter 10 talks about the present time of Israel, and chapter 11 talks about the, or the future side of Israel, and if those have any components, then the church doesn't have the authority like they thought they did, right? That Israel is still a factor. So he took those out. So the premise, and this is, this is when we lay it down here, okay, is that Jesus was the complete embodiment of God, 
the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is not our source, but it was Jesus. We just looked at Jesus and what Jesus did, not the Bible. The Old Testament was fables and mythical. Um, they might perhaps convey a moral story, but it's not necessarily something rooted in history. It's not so much an event, but it's about a person. Have you guys heard anything like this being said in recent years, um, maybe through TV preachers and stuff like that? Well, guess what? This thing has reared its ugly head once again. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you a clip here from Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is part of an organization called Preach, uh, Preaching Rocket, something like that. They, uh, they brought in a bunch of pastors trying to get them to, better, to preach better. You know, to help them illustrate sermons and things like that. And, and there's always good in that. We can always hone our craft a little bit. But um, they're interviewing him on what his thoughts are. So I want you to watch. It's about three minutes long. Go ahead, guys. Make sure the volume's up.
Uh, here, here's a more recent thing. That, that thing was probably six or eight years old, the one I showed you. The Old Testament was not the go-to source regarding any behavior for the church. He's talking early church. Is that true? It is not. In fact, the statement you heard a minute ago, is there truth in some of the statements that were made? Yes, there was. Because is our faith in a book or is it in the stories that the book talk about? Well, of course, it's in the story, the person of Jesus. We believe that Adam and Eve, he, he said that. I believe in a historical Adam and Eve because Jesus did, right? But he keeps going back is like the infallibility of Scripture. Do you have to believe that creation is a myth or a fact in history in order to be born again? No, you, you, you can believe either way because that, that's not part of it in order to do that. But if you don't believe it as Jesus believed it, then you're undermining the authority of Christ. And that leads you down a bumpy road. So this would be an offshoot of Marcionism. In fact, I found this, this meme as I was looking up some of these things, and I could have given you several of these. Can you go to the uh, next slide, please? There we go. Christians must hitch Old Testament from their faith. Hmm. Heresy, that is. I, I just found that funny. Yeah, I, it, you know, there's a new Star Wars movie out there. I just kind of liked it. Okay? You see, this, this, what he's been saying recently, it's been causing a big stir up in the church, is, is that essentially that you don't need that Old Testament because Jesus is the embodiment of God, and so we look to him as our source of information. In fact, just this last week, there was a conference down in St. Joe at a church that some of you guys are very familiar with. Guys, I don't normally throw names out there and stuff like that, but this is one of the tweets that went out. Go ahead and put that up, please. Jesus Christ is our final authority for our faith, not the Bible. Is that statement true? Yes, in one sense. Jesus is the final authority in our faith. But here's the question. Without the Bible, how would you know about Him? That's the part they're leaving out. So, they're undermining the scriptures, and many of this have gone to say, you know, I don't know if those are literal stories in history, and I don't care when I'm dealing with the Old Testament. It makes no difference to me. I just look to Jesus, and the question is, how do you know what Jesus said, what he taught, and what he did without the scriptures? In other words, Jesus gives validity to the very book that you're saying is invalid, Sounds like a problem to me, right? So they begin to come up with these own ideas and reject these other things that are out there. Now, this should sound familiar, right? Because if we go back to the beginning, we saw this very thing happen in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, who's the serpent? The devil, the enemy was more cunning than any beast of the field, and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You should not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you will die. Okay? So she knew what God said, right? Add a little bit to it, but she knew what God said. What does the serpent say? You'll not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hey, guys, how appealing is it to be like God? Pretty appealing, right? In fact, we use the statement like, we want to be Christ-like, okay? 
So what is her reaction? He, he said, did God really say that? And she said, well, yeah, this is what he said. It's like, well, no, that's not what he meant. I mean, I know that's what he said, but that's not what he meant. And this is what her response is. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so it looked good, it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, it's like, huh, you know, maybe he's got a point. I mean, it looks good. There's nothing wrong with it. And uh, it kind of gave me what I want. Must be okay. She took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a covering. What did, what did the enemy do in the very beginning? How's the first thing he did? Did God really say that? Are you sure? What do we do today? What did they just do? Jesus quotes the Old Testament more times than you can ever count. The book of Revelation alludes to it 800 times by itself. So what do they have to do? We've got to get rid of that. Got to get rid of that. that. That doesn't work. We can't do that. In other words, they're saying, God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant, which is what the enemy does. Is, is the enemy still using people? Oh, absolutely. Andy Stanley has an incredible background um, and, and godly heritage. I mean, his father, uh, Jim? Charles Stanley, that's what it is. Good Baptist preacher, right? Obviously, we'd have a little difference in theology, but our cores, we're on par. He's done great work, and this is where his son is going. And guys, I could go on and on and on with different quotes that he's come out with in the last six months, and it's, it's disturbing. But it, it's not just this dude on TV. St. Joe, we're close to home. In fact, it's infiltrated some in this town because we're always sitting there like, oh, well, uh, yeah, I know that the Bible says this, but I don't think that's what he meant. What's the big thing right now? Homosexuality. Oh, yeah, he talks about that. But they just meant like a non-monogamous relationship. They don't have the word monogamous in Hebrew, just so you know. They're like, that's not what he meant. That's, 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 that's what he said, but he didn't mean it like that. Well, look at what Jesus did in Matthew 4, okay? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be what? Tempted by the devil. Let's call him the serpent. He's going to be tempted by the serpent, the same one that was in the beginning. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. When the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Tell him, hey, prove yourself to me. Does Jesus need to prove himself to anybody? No. No, not at all. But how does Jesus respond is key. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Straight out of Deuteronomy. What was his response to the temptation of the enemy? With the word. Okay, let's go on. The devil took him up into the holy city, which is what? Jerusalem. Set him on the pinnacle of the temple, which is what? That's the top. You may want to ask how he got him up there. I don't know that part. He said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Now, watch what he does. For it is written. Okay, there's the devil. He shall give his angels charge over you and... In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. So did the devil know the scripture? So in other words, what's he saying to Jesus right here? He's like, yeah, I'm quoting the word. I'm telling you what the Bible says. I'm, te I'm telling you what God said. Watch Jesus' response, verse 7. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. What did he respond with? Scripture. Now, those scriptures that, he, that the devil used there are completely out of context. I know that's shocking to hear. But they're completely out of context. They make no sense in light of what he was saying there. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. There's no, I know, God, this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. 
Verse 8, again, the devil took him up to exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory, and he said to him, if all these things I'll give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said, away with you, Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Guys, what was the response? It was scripture, and it was the Old Testament that he did this with. You see, we have a logical fallacy when we begin to start to undermine the authority of Scripture, which is what was going on in that video, what you're seeing happen in the church all across America today. They have undermined the authority of Scripture because they cannot accept what it says as truth. So they're creating a God in their own image that makes more sense to them and already lines up with what they believe. In fact, I had a gal one time told me she wanted to, she wanted to come visit our church here one time and uh, just kind of caught me on, on a random moment and stuff. I was like, oh, okay, well, you're welcome anytime. She's like, yeah, she's like, I'm just looking for a church that makes me feel comfortable. And I told her, okay, now this is not typically a response, but I figured I'd shoot her straight because apparently she's married but also has a boyfriend. This is what I find out. And I said, well, we're probably not the church for you because you should not be comfortable in your lifestyle the way that you're living. Is that the right thing to say or the wrong thing to say? I don't know, but I said it. Because, guys, why, why sugarcoat it? Think about when the rich man came to Jesus. Jesus, what must I do? And he says, oh, that's simple. Sell everything. Follow me. And what did he do? He turned around and walked. Okay? Now, that happens to one of us in the church. What do we do? We turn around and walk right after him. Like, oh, hold on, hold on. Okay. We don't have to sell everything today. But maybe we start a payment plan. You know, you start getting rid of some stuff. We'll start leaning out the herd a little bit. We'll get you to that point. But just don't run off. Just keep coming. What did Jesus do? He walked the other way. Sayonara, buddy. There's one way in, and you don't get to dictate how that is. Only he does. You see, the church has gone away from that. You guys see how the enemy is working through people. You see how that thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy. There are people being led to hell because of these false teachings. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And some of these people, is Andy Stanley born again? Well, he probably is. I have no reason to doubt that he isn't. But is he misled? Oh, you better believe it. I think his heart's in the right place, guys, because what he is saying is correct, that our faith is not grounded in the Bible in and of itself, but the stories that the Bible contains, the man that was Jesus, the Son of God coming to earth, all of those things, but we wouldn't know about them if it were not for the Scriptures, and you can show that. That's what the problem. If you begin to undermine one part, and what, as he said, well, what parts aren't myths? What parts can we trust? Okay. Now, you notice the parts that he's trusting are the ones that he likes. The stories of Jesus. The story of that you must come to him in faith. That you must be born again. There are churches today that no longer believe that. They're called universalist. That they believe that Jesus died for all, thus all are getting in. Okay. They can't accept. Again, another student that I went to school with has gone that route. He's a universalist, wrote an entire book, does not believe in hell. He does not believe that there is any afterlife uh, of misery, I guess, if you want internal punishment, whatever you want to call it, that we're all in. I don't care what you believe or if you believe, Jesus died for you, you're in, go do what you want. The sad part is, is he's got four kids, and that's what he's teaching them. Okay? These are people that I went to Rama with. A lot of people assume that everybody comes out of Rhema must know everything. Guess what, folks? They don't. Okay? Look at 2 Timothy 4. We're almost done. I charge you, therefore, before God. This is Timothy. Remember, Timothy's a pastor. 
and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. What word? Wait a minute. Paul, who these guys love, told Timothy to preach the very thing that they don't love. Be ready in season and out, which means you're, you're, you're constantly preparing. Convince, rebuke, exhort. What are those things? Convince. I'm telling you the truth. Let me show you why. Okay? Rebuke. Calling sin, sin. That's not right, guys. We need to do this. Exhort. Lifting them up. Encouraging them. All of that. Convince. Rebuke. Exhort. With all long-suffering and teaching. What does long-suffering mean? It means they ain't going to get it. It means keep doing it even when they don't want to listen. It means no matter what happens, you keep doing what you're supposed to do. No matter what. And this message isn't just for pastors. This is all of us. I don't care if I don't convince somebody that God is real and they need a Savior. I will continue to preach the message regardless of how they receive the message. I'll preach the Word at all times. Verse 3, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You just watched it. You're seeing it around you. We're no longer in what we call orthodoxy. We have now gone to what we call heterodoxy, which is if it feels good, do it. People are drawn to a message that they already believe because we don't want to be challenged. That is why in Acts 17.11, Paul was so blown away by the Bereans. How he said they're more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received this word, this new message that the Messiah has come and that we're supposed to give our life to Him. So what did they do? Okay, fine, we'll listen. And we'll go search the scripture to see if what you said was true. How come it was good enough for the Bereans, but we were just told we didn't have to do that? Explain that. You can't. You see, this is Marcionism and a different offshoot forming a, a new head saying, hey, guess what? I'm back. All is well. We have to stick with sound doctrine. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because we shouldn't be shocked by any of this. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if, it, if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. In other words, if you get something with our name on it, it doesn't mean it's from us. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And a man of sin is revealed, and the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, and that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The falling away. Guys, we have church members that have just gone and fallen away. And I don't mean church members here. Please understand. I'm not talking about here. I'm talking the big C. You see this stuff happen all the time. And why is it? Because nothing has changed. The enemy has continued to work through people. And in this case, he's working through teachers. And guess what? Some of those teachers have false signs and false wonders. In other words, we can't be tossed aside by every wind of doctrine. I don't care what the book is you read, and I don't care who the author is. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, we should not, re we should not believe it. It's okay to read it. Okay? I've got books on my bookshelf where one of them, the first two-thirds of the book was complete garbage, and the last third was really good. That's one of those I want to rip out the beginning part. Because it, the first two-thirds had nothing to do with the Bible. It was his opinion, but he doesn't state it as such. I've got books on my bookshelf with people that I completely disagree with. 
And the reason I read them is to see where they're coming from. And the reason I disagree with them is because it's contrary to Scripture. We have no choice. We cannot believe in the man Jesus coming to earth as the Son of God and dying a death that we deserve, raising again for th- uh, three days later and being exalted on the throne of God if we have no writing to tell us that it happened. These were eyewitness testimonies. We cannot invalidate them. We cannot fall into this trap. We have to use discernment. And it is not a gift of the Spirit. I mean, it kind of is, the discerning of spirits. But, but I mean, like, common sense. Like, it, when I'm working with young people that give their heart to the Lord, if they can get discernment, they're going to be just fine. If when they hear or read something and a little red flag goes up like, something's not right here, I know they're in good shape. They may not know why it's wrong, but they just know something's amiss. Guys, we have to, have to not get sucked into this kind of stuff. We have to be grounded in the Word. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm giving you a 2,000-year-old heresy that is beginning to make its way around the churches again today. We shouldn't be shocked by that. The reason is because we have undermined the authority of Scripture. And when we do that, we lose the ability to justify anything that we call true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Without that truth, without Him, it's all for naught. You guys with me?